Okay, I already told you where we're turning. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 52. Psalm 52 is one of the shorter ones. It's only nine verses long. But oh, there's a lot here. And so let's, let's read God's holy inspired word and we'll pray and then we'll um, watch how God opens it up for us. To the choir master, a maskal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever, because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's pray together. Father, your word indeed is good. And it shows us, Father, who we are, who we ought not to be, and who you are. As we always pray, Lord, we need your help because your word can fall on deaf ears. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't accomplish its purpose, but it means that it accomplishes a purpose that's fearful. So Lord, may your word fall on fertile soil in our hearts that we might hear you and heed you and believe and trust and wait on you. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So as I was saying to the children during the children's sermon, uh, Psalm 52 is the end of our four-part series on repentance that we began last month during the Christian liturgical season of Lent. And we already considered Psalm 51, which is one of the most beloved passages in the Bible because it's a terrific example of repentance. It opens, if you remember, with these soothing words, and maybe you haven't memorized. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. But not so comforting is the beginning of our last psalm on the theme of repentance, today's psalm, Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day long. Now, did did you hear those words, steadfast love, in in both Psalm 51 and 52? That is certainly by design, on purpose. Without a doubt, God gave us both Psalms 51 and 52 to teach us 
complementary truths about his steadfast love. And what we're going to learn is that his steadfast love is indeed like a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Listen to Solomon, David's son, when he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. God's summons to repent in Psalm 49. So I'm kind of jumping around here because all these psalms hang together as one piece, 49 through 52. 49 was essentially, what we looked at on Easter Sunday, a call for everyone to take stock of their personal security. Where is yours? Is it in your wealth, the abundance of your possessions, your abilities, maybe your intelligence, maybe the letters behind your last name? Or is it in God alone? You see, Psalm 52 that we have here this morning explores a terrible way that one man answered God's summons. And again, I ask, what about you? Because your answer really matters. Because wherever your security lies in this life, you are going to get cut. The question is, will your wound be fatal or will it be healing? I like how uh, our brother Steve Hollage uh, tells us the, the theme of his sermon. He always says, my doctrine this morning is, and uh, I'm not going to uh, impersonate him, but that's, that's, this is, the, this is the, what's printed at the top of your, your sermon outline. This is the, the, the lesson of Psalm 52. Inspired by a particular vicious example of betrayal, and this is probably the, the Old Testament example par excellence, where we read the New Testament example this morning of Judas Iscariot, Psalm 52 explores how malicious boasting and lying against God's anointed king leads to eternal ruin. But patience, trust, and believe it or not, holy laughter as replies of the righteous lead to eternal security. So what is the takeaway that we're going to find? To repent of all idolatrous trust and seek your security in God alone. The background here is necessary before we dive in, and it's put there right in the superscription of Psalm 52. So if you have your Bible in front of you, look at those words that come before we normally start reading the psalm. That's the story of when Doeg the Edomite came and told King Saul that David had come to the house of the priest Abimelech, or Ahimelech. And you can find that story in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. And we're going to re- re- uh, review a little bit of the details of the story as uh, the sermon progresses. But I want us to remember before we do that, that the context of book two in the Psalter, which is where we're at now, um, this four-part unit of Psalms, that Psalm 50 summons God's people to repent of their poor worship, and God's anointed king, Israel's ideal representative, responds with a ter- terrific example of repentance. You see that? Psalm 49, Psalm 50, I'm sorry, Psalm 50 and Psalm 51. Psalm 50, Psalm 51. It's the, it's the inner core. And then the outer core, Psalm 49, summons the nations to repent of their arrogant, godless pomp. And a Psalm 52, super evil nemesis, Doeg the Edomite, responds with terrible unrepentance. Like I said, it's hard to choose a more evil 
representative for Israel's mighty enemy than the pompous, murderous Doeg. So whereas David, the anointed king, represented the righteous and faithful who do repent of their sins, in other words, this is what you ought to do, kids, Doeg the Edomite represents the satanic, the evil, the wicked, mighty man who refuses to repent and will fall from the highest heights to the lowest depths, all the way down. You've heard the saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. <laughs> That's Psalm 52. So this morning, we're going to look at it in three, three parts, three points, and here they are. The temporal security of the evil one, the eventual ruin of the evil one, and the eternal security of the righteous one. Now let's look at the temporal security of the evil one first. And we're going to take it in in two parts, verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4. This is a a simple kind of sermon in the way that I've structured it because we're just going to walk on through from verses 1 to 9, okay? There's a lot of imagery that's packed here in the first two verses. And since the superscription sets the scene, it's designed to, uh, to drive our imagination, what we're supposed to be thinking of. So David here is writing a maskal. And remember that we learned that a maskal is a type of psalm. It's a teaching psalm. Not, not so much one that um, you get to respond with your heart to God, but saying, we need to listen to this. There's a lesson here. In, in our case, a cautionary tale that reveals the imaginary conversation in David's head as he's having with Doeg. Okay? You ever have those, those imaginary conversations with your foe? And you imagine, gosh, if I had just thought that at the time, that would have been the perfect zinger. <laughs> we all do that, don't we? That's in a sense what David's doing here as he writes out this, this psalm. But he's not doing it out of vengeance. He's doing it by a heart that is waiting and trusting and dependent on the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, I think you can see, is dripping with sarcasm. David, the mighty warrior, oh, and yes, he was a mighty warrior, is mocking how this evil one is boasting in the slaughter of an entire town. He says, basically, whoa, mighty man, (laughs) hold your horses. Oh, such a mighty man, what you did. Because you know what he did? He was around when David came fleeing King Saul and his men, and he stopped for a pit stop in the city of Nob at the house of the priest Ahimelech. And he said, me and my men are tired. We're hungry. What do you have for us? And Ahimelech says, well, this is, this is God's house. I mean, all we got is the communion bread, but you're David, and I'm serving King Saul, too, because you work for David, right? Yeah, yeah. So here, you can have some of this bread. This is, this is more important. And, uh, oh, you're asking for a sword, too, David? I got just the one for you. You know which one I'm going to bring out? Goliath's sword. And David goes, yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> and so David takes the bread. He's refreshed. He drinks the water. He takes the sword, and he heads off. And all the while, there was one more person in the room with David and the priest Ahimelech. Doeg the Edomite. The Edomite, not an Israelite, who's standing there going like this. Twisting his beard like Jafar and Aladdin and saying, I'm going to file this away. I'm going to use this later. And what happened? When Saul and his men finally arrived at Nob, hot on the tail of David after he had already gone, he asked Ahimelech, do you know where David is? And Doeg said, 
licked his lips and said, yeah, he's been here. Ahimelech helped him, gave him a sword, gave him bread, sent him on his way in secret. And Ahimelech says, oh, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. I mean, doesn't David work for you? And Saul says, men, take out your sword and slaughter that priest who doesn't have anything except for his white priestly robe on. And all the men say, oh, that's a really bad idea. And they take a step back. And Doeg steps forward. And he says, this is the moment. He says, I will do it. And he takes out his sword and he runs Ahimelech through. And then 85 of the priests in town who are defenseless in this godly town where they're happy and they're holy and they're righteous and they serve God. And he slaughters them all. And then he thinks, they're God's enemies, right? Yeah. What does God say to do to his enemies in God's land? We slaughter them, men, women, and children, donkey, sheep, everything. And he wipes out the whole town. And Saul says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will put you in charge of much. And he promotes him, I imagine, because he was uh, Saul's chief shepherd. But now he's in, he's in Saul's high court. And he's looking from his perch and saying, look at me. I am a mighty man, and I am a big shot. And David feels absolutely terrible. He's weeping. He goes, oh, I can't help but feel responsible for this. Why did I have to stop there? This is somehow partly my fault. And as he's on the run, he pens this psalm. And he's thinking about Doeg, this mighty man, and saying, you don't know who you are. The people are singing my praises and Saul's praises. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. But no one's going to sing the praises of Doeg, the Edomite, that mighty man. Who would? When he bided his time, or while he bided his time, Doeg, David says, I know what you were doing. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. That's verse 2. And when that time did arrive and Doeg sensed he could seize fortune and glory and power and a promotion in King Saul's service, he opened his mouth, as David imagined, and the tongue came out like a sharp razor. And just slashed all over the place. And then we pause here because we want to say with David, Oh, how evil and haughty and boasting. So proud of himself and drunk on his own dream of power. And yet his plot worked. You know, I, I looked at the concordance and I searched my Bible software. I tried to find out what happens to Doeg. That's the last you hear of him. The Bible doesn't tie up that loose end to say, oh, and he got what he deserved. At least for the time being, David believed that the mighty were going to fall. Now, if the first two verses talk about the, the haughty power of uh, greedy opportunism, the second pair of verses, verses 3 and 4, talk about the hearty power of deceitful speech. That, that's a bad pun. You got that right? Haughty power, hearty power. I know, but there is a pun in verse 6. And so, uh, see and fear, which we're going to look at in a few moments. God's not afraid of a bad pun. 
And the reason he does it, even though it's cringeworthy, is because you're going to remember it. That's the point. So what do I mean by hearty power? Well, let me explain. Jesus said it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, but it's what comes out of him, out of his, out of his evil heart, a defiled heart. We read about that in Matthew chapter 15. And that is certainly true. And Jesus wants us to understand that a defiled heart is the source of what makes a person do evil things. And here in Psalm 52, we have a complementary truth, not a contradiction, but a complementary truth that goes together. It's what it's trying to tell us is that when a person speaks evil out of a defiled heart, it tends to have a further degrading effect on the heart. You see, the man who lies to hurt someone who he despises will quickly fall in love with his words as he sees that evil desire come to fruition. A violent, razor-sharp tongue is super harmful to others. We know that. The whole thing about sticks and stones may break my bones and names will never hurt me. Who believes that? That's not true. Words are some of the most powerful weapons that we wield. And yet, deceitful speech is even more destructive to the speaker. And you say, how so? Come on, that doesn't sound right. This is how it works. It breaks the heart's ability to function as a moral compass. You slash your words around, you plot them out, and then they actually come true, and you get puffed up, and you start to fall in love and believe your own press. The tongue has great power in this sense, and the New Testament talks about that in the book of James. Once you speak a lie, whether it's slander or a half-truth or whatever, what you're doing is you're revealing your heart. That's what Jesus says. You want to know uh, the kind of tree that you are? You look at the fruits. And now... David's telling us, that you, uh, you, you've let it out. You kind of feel compelled by an inner drive to be consistent with yourself, with your words. And also, an outer pressure to, to follow through with your act of speech, that everybody else is looking at you. Ooh, did you hear what he said? I wonder what he's going to do next. And you feel the pressure, well, I've got to actually do it now. You see how that works? And when you do, you suddenly feel a sense of accomplishment and glee that you made your heart's desire become reality. David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shows us that deceitful speech has an added power to strengthen evil affections. So liars, like I said, tend to fall in love with their lies because uh, lies being acted upon, they're like a power trip. It's like a drug. It's like you're getting away with something. If you're a liar, you probably think that you're getting away with it most of the time. And drunk on that deceit, Liars begin to love more the evil than the good in telling the truth. Now, it doesn't mean that liars don't understand the nuance. They're usually very, very clever. Okay? You know that when you've lied, that you've done it to deceive, and then when you get away with it, you go, first you go, Phew, and you go, wow, that was pretty smooth of me to get away with that. We believe that telling the truth probably will pay off a little over the long haul. But lying always pays off big now. See the temptation? Now, what's the application for us? Well, it's a heart check. Heart check. Do you find yourself, brothers and sisters, loving evil and lying when it suits you? Whether it's for the adrenaline rush, the way it makes you feel, or for the immediate payoff, or the thrill of cleverly deceiving others? 
Or do you value honoring God and the promised payoff, the, the, the delayed gratification of someday hearing the God of heaven say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Now I put you in charge of much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what the righteous are waiting for. That's why we tell the truth, because we love God and we want his commendation rather than the, uh, the, cho- the, the cheers and the, and the jeers of those in this world that, that, uh, that build us up and, and bolster us in our lives. So I hope you see that verses 1 and 4 are stark images calling you to beware of two temptations of the evil one, two temptations. Whereas greedy opportunism gives a destructive, haughty power, deceitful speech gives a defiling, hearty power. Bad pun, but you're going to remember it. Now, if you've ever been treated like uh, human garbage uh, by people who took advantage of you to bolster um, their power or their position, then you know what this feels like. And there are places around the country and around the world where the rule of law is not respected or it's not enforced adequately. And so there are doegs, doeg the Edomites, that are, that are lurking and prowling around that are a threat to us. Um, it can be a matter of life and death in this life. But living here in little old idyllic Warrington, you're probably thinking, this is like kind of abstract. I mean, this is like what happens on the mission field and in scary, dark places around the world, but not in Warrington, Virginia. Not here in our, our little hometown. And I kind of had that feeling too. I was sitting at my, my desk on Friday going, how am I going to illustrate this? How am I going to come up with an example of when I've come across a doeg and the Edomite? And I thought for a moment, and I thought for a longer moment, and then I went for a walk because I couldn't think of anything. And I came back and I stared at my screen and I went, Oh, there's an email. And I checked my email. And now, I, I, I know this is going to be a surprise to you, okay? I, I, I got an email from a guy who said that he's installed some software on my computer two months ago, and he's been logging everything that I've done. And, and, and he turned on the, the camera, and he can see everything that I've done in front of it. And he said, I'm going to put it all on the internet, on YouTube, and I'm going to email all your contacts, and you, you, you can't stop me because I have everything under control on your computer, and I've seen everything that you've done. But if you want to stop it, then you can pay me such and such an amount in Bitcoin, and I'll delete all the files, I promise. And don't try to cover up because you've only got 48 hours, and it's already ticking. It's already ticking. I opened the email. And I thought, that's a dough egg. He doesn't know me. What kind of person sends an email to a stranger like that and can sleep at night? That can say, I'm going to go defraud a stranger and threaten to destroy his life and defraud him and steal from him and then laugh all the way to the bank. Doeg the Edomites will come and find you. If you haven't had that email, by the way, <laughs> be forewarned and forearmed. You'll eventually get that one. It's, it's a scam, Okay. I haven't clicked on anything and installed secret software, okay? I'm not afraid of someone filming me in my computer, okay? But a lot of people are because they're doing secret things on their computer. And they'd be terrified if their friends, their mom, their parents saw what they did. So there's a real fear there because we are indeed sinners and we're, being, we're afraid of being found out 
by dough eggs that exist, and not only exist, will come and find you. But that's not the end of the story. <laughs> dough eggs won't be on top forever. Praise God. Here's our, our second point of doctrine, if you will, the eventual ruin of the evil one. Verse 5, God will utterly rout the evil mighty one. He will not be on top forever. And he's not just going to fall back to number two in the pack, like, oh, I got tired and now I'm going to um, you know, be in the, uh, in the wind or the, what, what do you call it, the wake of the one in front and I'll, I'll, I'll chase him back again. No, not even the middle of the pack, but fall from the heights, the, the height of heights to the depth of depths. And look what happens when God is through with him, okay? Because David knows that he can't get a Doeg. He's protected by, by Saul now, and he wouldn't want to do it anyway because God's the one that fights our battles. Verse 5 describes the three-step humiliation that God will inflict on the Doegs of this world. And notice that David writes these, these uh, three steps in the first-person singular. I love that, because it's like David's imagining himself, himself on this high tower. You know, the, the Bible, especially in the Psalms, uh, likened God to a high tower. And God, he's, uh, David's standing up there in his security, who is in God, and pointing his finger down and hurling like prophetic denunci- denunciations down at Doeg. And this is what he said is going to happen. How will the wicked mighty one be judged? First, God will break you down forever. God will pull you down. He will tear you down. He will wipe you out. He will crush you. Second, God will snatch and tear you from your tent. In other words, God's going to scoop you up in the palm of his hand, and he's going to rip your plying claws away from the door of your house. Ah! That's what God's going to do. And then third, God will uproot you from the land of the living. These are all the three points of verse 5. Like a rotten tree plucked up with the mighty hand of God out of the ground, out of the place of rootedness and security. Out of the ground. I want us to see that the distress that will eventually fall on the evil mighty man is increasingly radical in its literal sense. In other words, it's working its way down to the roots. First, he's broken down. Next, he's made homeless. And finally, the disaster is complete without leaving a trace at all. This is what God's word says that God will do to the evil, mighty man. Can you imagine the pathetic picture in your mind? And what do you see? How does your heart respond? I'll tell you how David's heart responds because he tells us, the righteous shall see fear and even laugh. That's verses 6 and 7. Now here's what the righteous see. If you're rooting against Doeg, uh, that, he wouldn't, that he would get what's coming to him, then that means that you have not turned a blind eye to oppression. Okay? When I was acting out the story about what Doeg did in, in Nob to Ahimelech and the rest of the priests in the whole town, you didn't turn to your phone and go, oh, I've heard this story before. Let me check my email. No, you were riveted because that's an injustice that really happened. That's not a fairy tale. That was real. That happened in the land of of Israel, in the city of Nob, 3,000 years ago. And we're still talking about it today. Some people would rather not face the horrors of this world. 
um, the evil that resides in the hearts of men, and the violence that's inflicted on the innocents. Because it's too painful to pay attention to. Or it's easier just not to be bothered. Or they figure that someone else, God, some other person who's an activist, I don't know, will someday take care of it. It's somebody else's problem. But the Bible says that that's not the righteous response. The righteous don't look away from oppression. They see it. They look it in the face. They refuse to ignore, to excuse, and to keep a safe and secure emotional distance. When the righteous see, they don't become puffed up in pride and self-righteousness like, I'm the Savior and I'm going to go in there. No. Not like God won't punish us because I'm not as bad as that guy. No. The fear of God, who is the judge of all the earth, of the wicked and the righteous, drive their sight and drive their anger and drive their thirst for righteousness and justice. The righteous look at that smoldering pile of ashes that we looked at in verse 5, where the evil one once stood, and they're filled with awe and wonder at the justice and power of Almighty God. However, the righteous don't just cower in fear. Those who are on God's side, the righteous, again, not the self-righteous, the ones who are righteous by faith and trust in God, are so secure that they laugh at that smoldering ash heap. Now, lest we gloat or boast or inadvertently fall into the same trap of the mighty evil one, we need to consider what it means to see, to fear, and to even have that holy laughter. In my research this week, I collected uh, eight quotes, and I'm not going to read you any of them, but I'm just letting you know that they're out there, from preachers and theologians and commentators throughout church history, okay? Because today, some Christians believe a lie that God's people in centuries past were more vindictive or more mean, you know, kind of like it was a more violent age, and they just got away with calling people pigs and dogs and that sort of thing, you know? You read Luther and Calvin, and you realize they used some pretty colorful language. And we can think, oh... Those guys were pretty bad. I'm glad that we've, uh, we've evolved and been enlightened and moved past that by now. Well, in all those quotes that I found, every one of them emphasized the nuance and balance required to avoid both the rejoicing in an enemy's misfortune and frowning at the wrath of God on unrighteousness. If we won't laugh today when divine judgment falls on the wicked because we see ourselves as more spiritually mature than our forebears, then what we're really doing is we're making ourselves be spiritually out of touch with Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine of Hippo, David the King, and even God himself. We looked at that when we um, reviewed Psalm 2 a number of months ago. Do you remember that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> so, Rather than feigning a holier-than-thou attitude, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, to verse 7 as it gives us a better response, the holy laughter of the righteous. Look what it says. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in, his, in, his, in the abundance of riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Now, let's unpack what's behind 
that laugh by viewing it in the context of the surrounding psalms. Remember, all four of those, they hang together as a piece. Abundance of his riches, okay? That's the link between Psalm 52 and the divine summons in Psalm 49. If you were here on Easter Sunday, you heard that. The man in his pomp who trusts in his riches, he will be like the beasts of the field who will, who will not live, but will, will go down forever. I see, God says, your pomp and arrogance and your trust in abundant wealth, but it won't save you. So repent and return to me as Savior. Psalm 49. And then Psalm 50 and 51 we talked about. They go together too. In Psalm 50, God says, turn from your sin. And in Psalm 51, David gives us that terrific example of repentance. In Psalm 49, God says, turn from your sin. And in Psalm 52 this morning, Doeg gives us a terrible response because he's totally unrepentant. Utterly unrepentant. Doeg's unrepentance is so foolish and so stupid, and so short-sighted, and so evil, and so self-destructed that it's laughable. Now, when the doags of this life um, do their dirty deeds, we, we often make them object lessons for our kids. It might go something like this. Kids, remember, remember that man who devastated his family when he left his wife and kids and chased that rich babe? Remember him? Remember when we talked about him? Remember when we said he's not going to get away with that because God cannot be mocked without there being consequences? Remember when we talked about that? Yeah, Dad. Yeah, Mom. Well, look, at that, look at that poor, miserable wretch over there. You see him over there? That guy who didn't repent? That's the guy. That's the guy. And your kids go, oh, it's true. And the guy's over there gnashing his teeth and not repenting but saying, Rocks from heaven, from the mountain, fall on me. I'd rather that happen than me to praise God with my lips. And you look at it and you go, how pathetic is that? God, deliver me from being that, but look how ridiculous that is. Just turn. Now, that's, that's the obvious kind of answer. But when we're talking large-scale answers, large-scale examples, it's kind of sometimes not so obvious. We don't usually pick up on those. And what happens is we miss out on the joy of holy laughter. Think global. Think worldwide. Think cosmic. Think redemptive history. Think with me. Think what it must have been like as the Israelites had their home completely destroyed, like verse 5, okay? Broken down, torn away from their homes, burned completely to the ground, not a trace and they have their, their clothes on their backs, and maybe their, their lyre, their, their guitar, their harp, or whatever with them, and they're in Babylon, and now they're the court jesters, the musicians, and their overlords, the Babylonians, are mocking them, and here's what they say. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. In other words, in other words we're not playing them anymore. We're hanging them up. I can't sing a happy song anymore. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And the rest of the psalm is like, how can we do that? Look what Babylon did to us. And yet, 70 years later, a whole generation later, 
God brought destruction on Babylon and brought the people back where they rebuilt God's house and God's city. So that by the time you get to the end of the Bible, Babylon is a byword, the greatest empire in the world, for that guy on a cosmic scale. Nobody's afraid of Babylon anymore. It's an, it's a, it's an archaeological site. It's a, it's a tourist trap somewhere in Iraq. It's not there anymore. <laughs> People, God, isn't that wonderful? We're sitting in a sanctuary in Warrington, Virginia, and we're rejoicing that God saved his people from a cosmically-sized doeg in the Old Testament. And we can sing about how God delivers us from the evil mighty one. And he's done it because we're sitting here and we're recognizing that we can rejoice in God who's kept his promises. Jesus, who hung on the cross, dying there, nails driven through his flesh, and a spear piercing his heart, the doegs of the age and all their demon overlords sang and danced and laughed around him, slashing their devouring words as they opened their mouth and their tongue wagged at Jesus, at his disciples, his righteous ones, at the God of heaven. But not 70 years later, only three days later, Jesus rose again from the dead, and brought the kingdom of Satan to its knees, never to rise again. And sinners, for all those who have been made righteous by faith in him, the dragon, that serpent of old, will forever be a biblical byword on a cosmic scale of that false god guy. <laughs> that's, that's why the medieval artists, they portrayed the devil as this costumed red little demon with pointy horns and a silly pitchfork. Why? Because they could laugh at him. They could make fun of him. They could realize that he's the devil. Yes, he's the roaring lion, but he's been defanged. And he's on a leash that the other end is in the hand of our almighty God who will protect us and on the last day cast him into the lake of fire. And you're wearing a mask. I can't tell if you're smiling, but that should make you smile (laughs) and break out in holy laughter. And so all God's people see, fear, and laugh at the sight of the evil mighty one who has fallen. Now this has been going on for a while, so let me, let me try to wrap up with our last couple of verses. The eternal security of the righteous one. The image of an olive tree here echoes other psalms. And um, I think the best way to talk about an olive tree is to describe how long it lives and how big it is and how wonderful it is. Okay? So if you, if you Google the olive tree, especially the ones in Israel, and you find that they can live for an average of 500 years, <laughs> um, sometimes millennia, yeah. And then you Google oldest um, olive tree in Israel. And in Jerusalem's Garden of Gethsemane today, there's an olive tree that is cordoned off with a fence that people go and gawk at. Because this is the way that olive tree grows. It goes, whoop, about 30 feet up. And then it stops growing high. And for the rest of its life, it grows out. And my arms aren't wide enough to describe for you the picture that I saw on the internet of how big this olive tree that's only 900 years old in the Garden of Gethsemane, little garden, okay? 
there's the, that's not even the oldest one in Israel. You Google that one, and there's one that the, the tree experts who know how to estimate this kind of stuff, they say it's like 100,000 years old. Now, brothers and sisters, that in terms of something living on earth is about as old as you can get. That's about as close as you can get to eternity. Now, what's the point? David is using an image saying that I know that olive trees are not planted in God's house, okay? He's reversing the image. He's saying, when Doeg falls, he falls because he's unrepentant and because he's evil and because God is good and just. But because I wait and trust on the Lord, okay, I am like a green olive tree, flourishing, getting bigger and bigger, okay? This is the righteous boast, if you sense. You, you, don't, you don't see it in the text, but you imagine the image. I mean, this is, this is a big tree. And not just a big tree somewhere, but planted in God's house. This is where I am. <laughs> Bearing fruit, usefulness, glory, where people can come and see that is what God will do for the one who waits and trusts him. And then verse 9 Psalm 52 concludes with two vows. I will thank you forever, and I will wait for your name. Now this, my friends, is where David's advice gets really practical. Okay? I want you to see that David vows to thank God before he can see the future demise of the evil mighty one who trusts in himself. Okay? We don't find what happened to Doeg in the Bible, and and when David wrote this, Doeg was still probably wearing a a, a robe and attending to the king, kind of like Haman in the book of Esther. So his vows are essentially a confession of faith in God, of trust in his Lord. He's not wishing, okay? And he's not doing that name it and claim it thing. Rather, he's so confident in God's covenant name. Okay, that's what it says in verse 9. I will wait on your name. Yahweh, I am. The one who is the source of all being the one who speaks and the universe leaps into existence, the one who says, let it be, and it is, merely by the power of his word. That's the one I trust him. And he believes that the evil mighty one, in this case, Doeg, who occupies that high position in Saul's royal court, is as good as dead. Do you understand the main thing that Psalm 52 is teaching you to do? You see, David, with his knowledge of the scriptures and his daily walk with God, in other words, his experiential knowledge of God, is reading the story that God is writing. And he's wrestling with God to figure out what his place is in the story. He thinks, and he ponders, and he sees the great evil that Doeg has inflicted on all those innocent people and then yet how the evil, mighty man, Doeg, was rewarded for it. And then David looks at himself. Okay, he's, he's, he's the anointed one. He's the, he's the king. He's the one who represents Israel, even while he's a fugitive on the run for his life. He knows Doeg is doom, doomed for a terrible fall. And he also knows that he is like a green olive tree as a symbol of Israel, even to this day it is, And that Israel's anointed can see himself as that tree, even in affliction. Even in affliction. You see, David discerned his place in God's story. And so should you. As you walk by faith in Jesus Christ, who as the Messiah is the greater son of David, he's the Israel of God, learn to see yourself in the story that God is writing. 
Make sure that you know the story well enough to see beforehand where it's going. And then by faith, enjoy a good, hearty, holy laugh. Not with the pompous unrepentance of Doeg, but like David, with a godly fear and repentance and trust that in Christ that you will be secure forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us to this, this end of this unit of repentance. I know that, that I myself have a much firmer grasp by your, your gift to, to me being able to study and being able to present it to my brothers and sisters, my beloved church family here in this congregation. Lord, we need repentance. It is a vital aspect of coming to Christ. We need to turn from being like that guy or any degree in that direction and turn to you. Help us, Father, to see that our place in the story is that we get engrafted into the green olive tree, the Israel of God, Jesus Christ. So as a branch on that tree, we don't draw glory to ourselves, but we glorify the giant tree who is planted in your house forever. We see him as the Lord Jesus, and we delight to bear fruit for him. We pray that you would help us to do so by faith and help us to remember to read the story that you're writing and to know it so well beforehand that we can see where it's going and therefore live by faith and trust that you indeed will finish the story. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the story writer. Amen.